Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. Football's development at the highest level over the past few years has been scintillating. As the demands for the game increase and coaches are trying to do everything they can to gain an extra percentage on their opponents, so too have the demands for specialist coaches. In recent years, we've seen a rapid rise of set-piece coaches. Our very own former TFA analyst Cameron Meehan, who's now an opposition analyst for Chelsea Women, works as a set-piece consultant and wrote some fabulous in-depth pieces on the TFA website, which you must check out if set-pieces are your forte, or even if you want to develop your knowledge of set-plays in general. Most clubs, particularly in the Premier League, have appointed set-piece coaches to help with that side of the game, which allows managers and other coaches to focus on other aspects of the side. Even Liverpool were pioneers in the Premier League for bringing in throwing coach in the form of Thomas Gronemark. In Gronemark's first season at Anfield under Jurgen Klopp, Liverpool scored more goals starting from throw-ins than any other side in the division, proving the specialist coaches work. I'm delighted to say that today we have a guest on who specialises in an area I never would have imagined there was a coach for, and that is substitutions. On this episode, I speak to Sammy Landler, who worked as a substitutions coach with AFC Wimbledon last season. In League One in the previous campaign, Wimbledon boasted the second highest number of goal contributions from substitutes, finishing just behind Fleetwood Town in this metric. Sammy has kindly joined us today to speak about why his role is so vital and why we will see more and more substitutions coaches at the highest level in the coming years. So without further ado, let's go speak to Sammy. Sammy, thanks for joining us today. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you, Adam. I'm good to be here. I'm, I'm delighted to sort of have these chats. I absolutely uh, love talking football, so I'm excited for our chat. I'm delighted to have you on. Sammy, you worked in a few roles before moving to Wimbledon, I think including several positions at Bournemouth and then with Weymouth. But how did you discover there was a gap in the market for a, a substitutions coach? Yeah, it was um, It was quite a unique, yes, quite a unique role. And it's probably quite a unique story as well, really. So obviously I was at Weymouth and um, I was the first team coach there. So um, I was sort of leading sort of some exercise on the training ground and then as we sort of came into COVID um, we had to follow a few players because we were a part-time team in a, in a full-time league effectively um, you know with the big dogs like Notts County and that sort of thing and we were little old Weymouth who had been a, a part-time team in the Southern Prem not, not two years ago so you know it was a big transition for us and we hadn't yet moved into that full-time model that, that mm-hmm. the club was hoping to so yeah we, we had to follow a lot of players through COVID um, because of that I then started getting named as a substitute. Um, yeah, which was a dream come true for me. So you're me. a good player? No, I'm an okay <laughs> player. Um, I've got, I'm like, I'd like to think of like Jordan Henderson, but, but like, oh, okay. a, a poorer version of it. I've got, I've got legs. I, can, I think I can cover ground, but, you know, technically that's where I get found out a little bit. But um, yeah, so, so I've got my shirt made up and I had shin pads, you know, I'm on the bench and I'm, you know, sort of, experiencing what it's like mm-hmm. to be a substitute which is the first time in my career really because I'd always prioritised coaching scouting analysis that sort of thing that I'd actually experienced what it was like to be a player you know doing the warm-ups and, and little things like that and there was one game against Maidenhead in the FA Trophy where Gaffer's turned around and he's gone Sammy you ready to come on and um, and I'm thinking Jesus like I'm not I'm nowhere near ready do you know what I mean like I've not warmed up I haven't touched the football you know I'm a little bit aware of our pressing shape because I'm a coach and I've focused on that but and in, it was that moment, it was just like a light bulb moment where I started thinking, wow, like if I feel like this, how, how do every other substitute feel like? You know, is this is this the experience that they feel? And, and from that, it sort of snowballed into an actual concept that I sort of designed and managed to sort of, yeah, sort of, I don't want to say help, but bridge that gap between being a substitute in a, in a sort of an intense full game, really. I really like that. Did you approach Wimbledon with your picture? How did that move come about? 
And were they yes. intrigued about having the idea of such a, a neat role on the coach and stuff? So I had, um, yeah, so I'd sort of designed a presentation that, that I was able to deliver to a few clubs. And um, I'd spoke with Andy Parslow previously. At, at, he was previously um, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a cool guy. Yeah, he's, so he's done a lot for me. Um, and, and he was obviously set-piece coach. Mm-hmm. So, so I'd heard a little bit about Wimbledon already because I chatted to him just for some sort of mentoring advice. And he sort of said how um, they have a few specialist coaches already in a mindset and a performance coach with Ben Ryan and himself, uh, as well as like nutrition. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to Robbo um, on LinkedIn. I think it was how I reached out to him and, and he invited me in. And I presented presented the, the concept to him and just said, look, you know, this I think this is going to be a thing. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I really back this. I trust it. Mm-hmm. And he was lucky enough to sort of give me that position for, for the eight, nine months that I was there. And, and he found quite good success with it, really. Obviously, Mark Robinson was very open to the idea, and he must have, he is a very progressive coach, of course, and he has a set piece coach and a substitutions coach in you. But were you met with resistance when you first came to Wimbledon by anyone else? Because I know Robert is it Robert Tuve did the assistant manager did an interview, I think, with the Athletic, and he said something along the lines of he was a bit perplexed as to the nature of the role. But you won him over in the end, he said. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think there's been a person in football that I've talked to who's been completely sold on the first sign, you know, because it is so brand new. It's, you know, it is a little bit out there and niche and unique. And there are things where probably you go, do you need a coach for that, really? But mm-hmm. but the presentation explains why why you do, you know, and how those gains can be made. But Wimbledon was fantastic. You know what I mean? Naturally, there was a little bit of um, context needed. And as soon as that context was offered, you know, everyone was really supportive at Wimbledon and I can't speak highly enough of from the players all the way through the academy staff, you know, right up to Robbo and Will Daniels and, you know, the, the top dogs at Wimbledon who, who really sort of welcomed me and supported me in that role because it needed it because it was so new. So you swayed possibly the most important man in Mark Robinson to, you know, hire you and bring you in and, and have such a niche role within the club. But were you met with resistance at other clubs then that maybe you pitched it that weren't so progressive and weren't so keen on the idea? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So um, when I was sort of younger and in academy and I'm trying to make my name for myself in Bournemouth, Carl Robson, so um, a former <laughs> line manager of mine, sort of said to me, um, you've got to re- get rejected 100 times before you become successful. And then since that day, I've got a list now in my room where every time I get rejection, you know, added to the list and, and I'm one step closer to being successful. And and I've definitely, since I've started this concept, I've definitely racked up a few of those numbers um, mm-hmm. because there aren't people who are ready for this sort of concept in football. And that's absolutely fine. You know, games of football, uh, football's a game of an opinion, sorry. So so there's no right or wrong. You know, some people enjoy this sort of like open-minded and, and new ideas and being challenged. And some people have their ways and, and that's how they want to do it. And I don't think there's a right or wrong, but, you know, I'm I'm sort of leaning towards the clubs who are open-minded to developing sort of new ideas and, and having those marginal gains now. Yeah. And another thing that intrigued me about you was that you called them finishers and not substitutes. That actually reminded me, I had Rennie Mullenstein on a couple of weeks back, I think it was during oh, wow. the summer, yeah, and he was talking about, well, I, I asked him a question that I was genuinely in, intrigued about by saying, how did you come in to a, you know on the training ground with Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs who are world class players and may, like, like with the fullest respect how do you make them better how do you tell Paul Scholes how he has to be a better footballer and he said to me the language they used was to add to their game he never used the word change because change has a negative 
it, it, people think of it negatively when they think of the word change because people don't like mm. change. So if you use the word add, and it reminded me of what you said about using finishers and not substitutes. How important is this to change in a, a player's perspective of being a sub in a sport where everyone wants to start? Yeah, so so the psychological role of the aspect is probably one of the most important, um, and and you've touched on it brilliantly there. But but deselection as a player is one of the biggest sort of hurdles or, or paths that you have to take as a player because you know naturally as a player across a 12, 13 year career you are not going to be able to start every single game because your body doesn't allow it. So you have to you have to sort of find a way to cope with being a substitute. And one of the parts I put in the presentation was that. I was lucky enough to interview quite a few players back when I first started designing the concept and, and I sort of just opened the room up to these players and just said, look, talk to me about your experiences as a substitute. And and the words defeatist, disheartened, um, excluded, you know, these words sort of kept coming up. And I think that's sort of associated with that stigma of being a substitute is that you're almost forgotten about a little bit or, or not important. And and I think that's that's obviously not how it's ever meant, you know, from managers. It's just that they're focusing on the starting eleven because... Rightfully yeah. so, they're there for minute one. And, and something that we found with the role was that giving them this term finishers, we've used energizers, uh, match winners, you know, we have loads of names for them, really empowered them in the role. Mm. And, it, and it was like, oh, that's my role. Do you know what I mean? Rather than sort of calling it the substitute, which comes with this real sort of like negative associational stigma. Now you're empowering these players and giving them a little bit of an idea about what their role might be on that day. So a finisher, a closer, a match winner, you know, an energizer, it now gives them a little bit of an idea of what they need to do as a substitute and empowers them to do it. So I'm I'm thinking about a couple of scenarios in my head mm. of players that I remember. I'm, I know one example. Last season, it was Mark Noble came on against Manchester United in the last minute. And he, his only touch of the ball was a penalty and he mm. missed. And of course, there was uproar because David Moyes... Or there, was, there was criticism for Moyes because he brought him on. He didn't really have a, he didn't have a warm up. He, you know nothing. But I, I, I know realistically. I mean, if he had a score, no one really cares. But <laughs> yeah. obviously, how, how would his mental state have been? As you said there, and that kind of he's a substitute. He comes on. He's not having warmed up. You said about how important the kind of the warm up is, especially to the player. Why mm. is that? Um, so it touches a little bit on tactical periodization. You know where where their aim is to almost. Um, sort of prepare players and paint pictures for players, you know, so that you can sort of relate it to a game state, game intensity and game sort of match as close as possible. So, and and that's why I think substitute struggle so much is because they go from being sat down for, for 15 minutes to entering a game where they might have to reach their top speed in, in seconds, you know, with no warm up. They have to go from sat watching the game to being within the game within a pressing shape in seconds you know they have to go from sitting watching the game to performing a 50 yard diag you know that's going to be the difference between getting a player through and not through so what my role was designed to is to try and bridge that gap and do things so that we can try and prepare these players so that we've painted all the pictures already for when they come on they feel ready in all of those corners and and touching on the mark noble example i think that that probably wouldn't have been in my opinion again i'm, I'm an outside looking in but I don't think it'd be from a psychological point of view because Mark Noble is, you know, near one of near the end of his career. He will have sort of, in my opinion, sort of understood mm. his role as a substitute. What it might have come from the fact is that he hadn't touched the ball for 45 minutes. So you're asking him to now take one touch of the ball that's got to be the most important touch in a game of football. And, and you know, I, I always go down to park and when you play headers and voles, your first volley is always at the park, isn't it? Because it's your <laughs> first one of the day. So... 
I always say it's like it's like driving a car. Sometimes the first gear change is a little bit funny. Mm-hmm. By the fiftieth gear change, you do it naturally and involuntary because you're playing with your instinct. And I think it's a little bit like that. So in that Mark Noble example, I would say that maybe not from a psychological perspective, but maybe more so from from a technical perspective, he wasn't warmed up. Sammy, as you walked in with so, so the last season when you were with Wimbledon. Were you hands-on at the at, you know the training ground with Wimbledon or did a lot of the work happen behind the scenes in preparation for a match day? Because obviously it, it, in my mind, a, a finisher's coach, or as you call it, would, you know, it, it, a lot would work, a lot of work would need to be done on a, a laptop behind the scenes, getting the players ready, knowing which, you know, player might be used at a certain time of the game, etc. But how, how would you work on the training ground with the players then? Uh, so not directly, you know, I'd been in and around it and on, on a couple of occasions, you know, I led a few, not led, I, I assisted with a few technicals and, and you'd be a cone boy as well to help. And, 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 you know, I made a few cracking decisions as a lino in, in a few sort of small <laughs> type of games, but, um, largely, you know, game day would be when I probably come into my most busy, you yeah. know, period in, in the role. Um, but it, I did find going through the year that being involved in a, in a training session w- was crucial because, my my substitutes or my finishers would have to go on and impact the game of football. So it was essential that I knew how the opposition were going to play. Uh, you know, because if I was, I would use the example of, um, you know, probably I think Shrewsbury did it last year, who, who typically when they went up um, in a lead and one nil, two nil up, they would then sit back and protect. Um, but only would they sort of do that once they were in the lead. So for me, it was important that I knew this information and a little bit of detail about how we were going to unlock them, what shape do they sit back in, you know, any little game managements, any individual targets that we can sort of set. Because if I didn't know that information, then the tactical side for the substitutes is almost non-existent. So I found that, you know, while I would always love to be involved in training because I'm a coach and I love being on the grass, being in and around the training and the analysis, you know, and and pressing shapes and, and the tactics that we were going to use was just as important for me to know as the players because I would have to reinforce that on the bench. So it was a slightly different role, not not the traditional coaching role, um, but it was like sort of a variation of it, really. And how did the players react then when you first came? Because I would imagine they've never been coached by such a, as I said, such a niche role. So how did they react when you came in? You explained the idea. Did it give them confidence? You know, did you see an upturn in confidence when maybe they were named as as substitutes on the bench? Yeah. So it it was. Um... It was fantastic to, to put it in sort of in its most basic way. It was it was fantastic. The players were a fantastic group. It was you know the squad culture that, that was created by Robbo was amazing. Everyone was so open minded. I didn't really face one problem from a player almost resisting what I had to do, um, and and that's testament to the culture that Robbo created. Um, but additionally, this role isn't designed necessarily to benefit coaches. It's designed to benefit those players because I'm not the player that's going to have to come on against Rotherham when we're one nil down to try and secure us a goal. You know, they're the players that are going to have to do that. So I think for me, what I sort of noticed is that they really appreciated the role because it was something that was actually helping them bridge a problem in today's footballing world. Do you know what I mean? Like, like all of those players themselves had said at one point when I was sort of talking to them that they struggle to be sometimes finishers because of the intensity or, or mm. you know, that they're, they're being excluded or, or whatever the reason may be. So the players actually took to it really well. And it's something that I anticipated for a little bit because, like I said, it's there to benefit them. Um, so, yeah, they were fantastic with it. And, and I'll be forever grateful for all of those players that sort of like helped me yeah. sort of progress the role as well. But it would benefit the coach in 
more indirect way, I suppose, because if your substitutes mm. are ready or your finishers are ready to come on, they come on, they say score a last minute goal, then happy day, yeah. three points yeah. in the bag, you know, he's he's delighted. But would it benefit them in the sense of they know when the right time maybe to bring a player on is? Like, would you tell them that information? Like, okay, well, he scored this many goals coming on the last 30 and then you go to the manager and you tell him this information and he'll do it and then say the player comes on and scores. Is, is that how that would work on a match day as well during the game? Yeah, so my, my role will always be an advisory role. I would I would never tell Robert what to do yeah. because he's the gaffer, you know, and he and his knowledge of the game is far superior than mine. So, um, you know, his decisions would would be final, and and you know that was that. I would always sort of just offer a potentially a little bit of background to to, to the suggestion, or or maybe data to the suggestion, just so that I was you know offering my perspective on it and. Just like all good coaches would, they put their perspective out there, and, and then it's up to the gaffer to make the final call on what he's seen. But it's a it's a very good question, and something that I've been asked time and time again. So I've been into twenty clubs this summer, you know, sort of presenting all this, and um, every single manager or coach or director of football or person I come up to says, "When's the best time to make a substitute?" And for me, I've never seen two games of football play out exactly the same way because because that's the beauty of the game. You know, it's so unpredictable. There's so many external factors. So it's hard to say the 72nd minute is the best minute because, you know, this game might just not mean that. So what we did, um, and I've got to be a little bit careful because you know I can't, I can't reveal too much, <laughs> um, but we almost found a way to be player-driven with those substitutions. And, and like I say, it was only ever an advisory because Robbo, reading of the game, would tell him what substitutions he needed. But yeah, we would find ways to be player-driven with our substitutions rather than time-driven. That's really interesting. I like that. I don't know. I'm not going to push it on what you were talking about. But I am, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I spoke to the throwing coach recently and he said, you've got to be careful with what you reveal. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. everyone will be doing it. Oh yeah, no, of course, as I said, I'm not going to, I, I won't push you on that. But obviously you touched on there about there being external factors. It's like, I, I know when you do analysis courses and they tell you you break the game down into four phases and you attack defense and then your two transitions and maybe you've set pieces and what what have you and then in between that you have low block high block mid block whatever and then, and things like that but there are so many external factors that you physically cannot account for as you said you may have a perfect plan you're going to bring this player on here here and here and then an injury happens mm. or a red card happens you know so i'd imagine it's incredibly strenuous to plan for am i right yeah so um again i mean after the call i'll send you a little bit of sort of um the, the the data that we would use but you know i would almost um let's say we're playing portsmouth i'd always cut you know i'd look at the previous 15 games that portsmouth have played you know you look at previous substitutions you look at all this sort of in-game data to try and give you an idea of what their in-game trends are so that you could sort of prepare for that. Um, and then even so, you still get throw-ups of, of a refereeing yeah. decision being a little bit out there or something. But you try and plan for those things um, as much as I can. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot of um, a lot of sheets of paper when I was on the dugout, you know, looking at all the, the certain things. But that's part of the role, you know. And, and, and I personally quite enjoy data. I think it gives a lot of context. I don't think it's everything, but it gives a lot of context to things. So I'm quite um, data-driven. So I, so I enjoyed that sort of perspective in the role really and, and, and obviously the man the manager would have been open to that also then yeah is he yeah. Are, is the club very data driven as a whole it was yeah it was in the right ways it was yeah. in the right ways you know it wouldn't be completely um because there are times when it probably didn't need to be data driven mm. um but, but yeah robbo was fantastic like that and, and like i say i probably wouldn't say he was data driven but he was just open-minded so if he felt that 
the right way was to be data driven. He was open to that. If he felt the right way was to, you know, do the eye test and, yeah. and, and see what his his eyes actually tell him, he would do that. He was very good like that. Would your eyes light up when you were like analyzing an opponent and there was a perfect substitute pattern or something similar? We Would you, you know, I would imagine that would make your life so much easier when you were looking back at the opponent. Uh, what in terms of us? So, so it, yeah, so, so if you were playing, yes, no, but say you were playing in opposition, you were looking at their substitutes or whatnot, or mm. you know, when they were bringing a player on and the three players on the 60th minute would always be the same. Mm. Surely that would make your life so much easier. <laughs> yeah, it does. I tell you what makes my life even easier is when we used to, um, so I used to study like goals and 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 when they were scored, when they conceded by the team we were coming up against. So you'd break it down into five, 10 minute periods all throughout the game. And you would look at the patterns of when these teams scored their goals. So whenever you were used to come up against a team that would typically concede goals late on, that's when we would I'd get a little bit excited because it would usually mean then that, you know, typically it means they concede late goals. Yeah. So when our substitutes are coming on fresh, prepared, ready to go, understanding everything they need to do in their roles, then, you know, it means that there's a, the probability suggests that we might, uh, yeah, we might get a substitute mm-hmm. goal, which was something that's quite, a statistic that's quite heavily driven. <laughs> and Sammy, what tools would you use then, you know, if you were working on your laptop at home or, uh, you know, at your desk and you were, analyzing opposition on your own side what kind of tools would you use to establish which players were right were right to bring on and at what moments did you did you just look through voice go and yeah so it's again it's a brilliant question and, and the beauty of this role is that you need to be a little bit of everything mm-hmm. um and it suits my past quite well in terms of where i've been a scout before you know and you can observe things in great depth where you've been a little bit of analysis before so you can be comfortable with data and then where i've been a coach where i can be emotionally intelligent enough to understand where a player's head at and so you need a little bit of all of those things because as players and, and most importantly as people you know, we can be different every single morning that we wake up. So, you know, I can't look at a piece of data and predict that this player is going to have a bad night's sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's going to, you know, slow his decision making or slow his attitude towards being a finisher. So, you know, the beauty of it was that you have to have all of these things to, to sort of prepare because you have to be able to handle the player sort of in all the corners, if that makes sense. Just just touching on what you said then about actually, I know I touched on it at the start, but you had so many roles before you moved to Wimbledon. So you were with Weymouth, you were with Bournemouth, you were a plethora of roles at Bournemouth, I'm pretty sure. Mm. How did that kind of help you in your journey towards becoming the substitutions coach in terms of how you would handle certain situations with players? Because obviously being hands-on with the players and getting them mentally right and physically right was so important during games. You know, how did the how did your previous roles kind of all intertwine to help you reach this moment where you're able to be the best finishers mm. coach? Yeah, no, a great question. And, and if I'm completely honest, so my goal sort of when I was 18, 19 was to be a, fo- to be a football manager. You know what I mean? I, I, that's my dream and, I, and it continues to be my dream. So because um, I haven't got sort of a famous surname or a famous sort of career behind me, uh, you know, I'm going to have to earn it the hard way or, or the long way rather. And so I'm going to probably have to go through non-league and, and that sort of thing and earn my way. So from that sort of 17, 18, I realised that I'm going to have to go into non-league to be a manager. And when you go in a non-league, you don't have all these resources, you know, and I've experienced that being at Weymouth. You don't have the ability to have a sports science department. You don't have the ability to have an analysis department. You know, sometimes you can't even afford analysis program. So I, so from, so from minute one at 17 years old, I was like, right, I've got to expose myself in this academy environment at Bournemouth and Weymouth and, and Wimbledon to as much 
of the process as possible. You know, and that goes from picking the brains of a physio and about how do you know to do this to picking the brains of a, of a head of coaching, academy manager, first team, analyst, sports scientist, nutritionist, mindset, all of these things. And and I've got about 15 notepads just filled with everything that anyone's ever told me, really. Because at some point, I thought this is going to come in handy because yeah. you're a manager at a lower league club. Like I said, you don't have the resources to be privileged enough to say, I'm going to have the sports scientist take care of that. You might have to do it yourself. So um, that sort of that was always my approach. And it just came sort of hand in hand, actually, that by making all those notes, I could then sort of have a, a brief understanding of how I could analyze a substitute from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, I started designing the role and, and saying that, you know, this needs to be better, this needs better. So um, to answer your question in quite a long-winded way, yeah, it, it's, it's very important because, like I said, you need to have a brief understanding of all of sort of the departments that, that share substitutes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's probably the best way to that say was, that. That was an amazing answer. I, I, I was astonished listening to you. But obviously you touched on there as well about there were difficulties when you were at clubs like Weymouth and they wouldn't have had maybe the financial resources for, you know, for data packages and things like that. Mm. But what difficulties did you find then at Wimbledon? Because in every role, there's, and it doesn't just have to be based on the club, it could just be the role itself has difficulties. Mm. Obviously, every role does have difficulties. You know, being a manager, you'll have to deal with the media, you'll have to deal with the fans, etc., things like that. Being a player, you'll have to deal with getting booed and, and all that. But as a substitutions coach then, or a finishers coach, apologies, how did you, what what difficulties did you find in that role? Yeah, um, so, I mean, obviously Wimbledon weren't in League One, um, but but they weren't by all means, you know, a team with a massive budget. I think we had, I mean, I know that we had the youngest, I think we had the youngest squad in the EFL or the youngest squad in the league for sure. Um, and I know we have one of the smallest budgets in the league. So naturally, um, your squad depth, you know, and your, and your experience is, was always something that was going to be a little bit tricky. So we played Ipswich and, um, Neil Neil at half time, and I look over at their bench, and they've got Macaulay Bond, Connor Chaplin, you know, Sonia Luke. They got all these big names, you know, and then just sitting, you know, next to. So was, was this when Kieran McKenna took over a pro today? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was McKenna, yeah. So um, great manager as well. Great. Manager. He is great coach. Um, but yeah, so they've got 150 career goals sat on their bench, and, and we had, um, and the average age was 26, 27. I look at our bench and, and we had the average age was, was 19 mm. and we had about eight career goals and most of those were from our centre-back. So, so that's a challenge, you know, that, that's a challenge that we have to go, right, how are we going to get the most out of these lads so that we can, you know, balance off with these lads yeah. because Ipswich naturally have a much bigger budget so they can afford to have squad players that are of a great standard. You know, that was a problem that AFC Wimbledon encountered and it was just the nature of the budget of the club, you know, you can't do anything about that. But that, that was, it wasn't a problem, that was a challenge. And what information, never... what information was given to you then? Because I'd imagine in preparation for the role, you would have had to have been given information from things. I mean, maybe be injuries, etc. You know, what other roles would you have had to work with? So obviously you worked with the manager and, and, and the coaches and the players, of course. But did you work with other? Did you work with maybe data scientists or analysts or things like opposition analysts or things like that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So I, I worked with everyone, really. Because one of the things that I sort of pitched in the role is that substitute information is very often overlooked because they're not necessarily given the attention that a starter would you know if if you were to pick a starter you'd want to know physically where they're at technically where they're at tactically do they understand psychologically are they feeling good enough to start are they feeling ready 
And I felt like all of that information wasn't really accounted for for substitutes. So I would be I would be that guy, you know, I would centralise all that information that, that would then allow us to sort of, um, for me to pass that information on to Robbo yeah. and for him to then make the decision. But yeah, just put a little bit of demand on them as well because it can often be overlooked. How good did it feel when a substitute would come on and perform incredibly well or make, or score a goal for a winner or, or something? Yeah, it was it was a very, very good feeling. It was a very <laughs> good feeling. It was um, probably one of the best in football that I've had. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it, it just, everything that you're working towards, it's almost like it, you know it's working. You give yourself a little bit of like belief, you're like, it's, you know, it's working, mm-hmm. don't worry, it's there. Do you know what I mean? And so it was not, not relief because, you know, I trusted the process, but it was it was like real confidence booster because it was like, wow, like what I'm doing is making yeah. a difference. You know, that, that means a lot. But just going back, so one of the other problems that I actually faced at Wimbledon was that I wasn't in full time. So I was only in for sort of three to four days a week. And so I lived down in Bournemouth at the time and it meant sort of a lot of travelling um, to sort of be there for the training when I needed to. So that that probably was the biggest lesson that I'd learned. Um, and that's actually when I started following you guys because the amount of podcasts I rinsed on those journeys were, were unreal. So that's when I sort of found, uh, found Spotify and found football podcasts. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a question then about the team sheet. Were you told the team sheet in advance of the games so that you would be prepared, or was the team did did, did the manager just pick the team sheet then just the morning of the game or something, or, or were you actually told? Yeah. So again, it was it was that um, being involved in training on Friday would always give you a good idea of that because mm. I mean each week is different, like I said, but but sometimes the team would be decided on the Friday, um, and, and when it was, I would be in the office to be able to you know note note down and and be able to ensure that when it came to Saturday, I had all of the tools available that I needed to suit the finishers that I'd been given. So for example, there might have been players who responded really well to visual aids. So if I knew that they were going to be a finisher that day, I could go home on Friday evening, prepare something and make sure that it was ready for them Saturday. So yeah, I was, I was usually informed. Yeah. I want to ask you a question now that's more obviously personal to you. Being in that role, you have to pitch the clubs. You've you said you've pitched to several to a load of clubs about the role. Some obviously were interested, some maybe weren't. From a confidence point of view, though, that takes a lot of guts, and it's 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 it can be quite difficult to stand up in a room of people. And and you all, I also saw a video before. I think Tifa did a video on you. Uh, mm. Tifa football, it was, it was yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah I'd love a video on Tifa. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, but. I think in it they said that you gave a presentation in front of the players or the managers and the players. That must have been quite heavy for you. Are you are you naturally confident? Do you mind public speaking? How you know? How did you feel when you were standing up there? Or how yeah, do you no, feel in general? Sorry, when you're standing up in front of yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm quite a passionate person, mm-hmm. um, and I'm quite passionate about football. So so when those sort of two things collide, then then it tends to give me a little bit of confidence because I'm quite excited to talk about football, especially, you know, I've been into five Premier League clubs, you know, I've been into a couple of Champions League clubs. So to talk to these calibre of coaches, mm-hmm. for me, is the dream. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't ask for any more than that. Five years ago, you know, there's no way that I would have been able to walk into some of these clubs and pick the brains of some of these managers and coaches and sporting directors. So to be able to be given this platform, I just want to make it count. So, you know, whether if that's me just going to present my idea and they say that's brilliant, but not for us, then that's all be it. And, you know, and I ask a few extra questions that helps build my knowledge. Um, or if it's something that materializes into doing a little bit of work for them, then, then even better. But um, it, it was definitely, 
it's definitely something I've got better at, but, but that that's like it with everything, isn't it? You know, like I link it back to driving. You're a much better driver probably after the first year than on your first drive because you just you get into settle into your habits and that sort of thing. But it's definitely been something I've improved. Um, but no, it's, it's like I say, it's the dream. Do you know what I mean? It's that's yeah. that's what my dream is, is to go into these clubs and <clears throat> talk to these managers who who have got fantastic backgrounds and success and methods and and you know I feel privileged actually to be stood in front of them sort of pitching an idea to them. So you just got to make your platform count. And you said you spoke to all these amazing managers and directors. What's the best bit of advice they've given you then? Oh, tough one because um, like I say, I probably feel you don't you don't have to name names if you don't want to. I just I don't no, of course, yeah, advice. yeah. Um, yeah, the best one probably would be so Anthony Barry. He, yeah, so he's sort of we've exchanged numbers and emails, and and I've sent him a couple where I've picked his brains on just a couple of things. You know, even if it's just a tactics or a or um, a question about management or something. And he he always has time for me, and so he's 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 yeah. He'd probably be he probably hasn't given me one bit of specific advice he's been someone who's been very helpful towards me and just given me keeping me inspired as well as harry watling at um at qpr he he, he was amazing and anthony hayes at charlton those three yeah those three were just very very inspiring is yeah. what i would say just just said the right things that i needed to hear and it put like fire in my belly to keep going that's interesting that you say that because david artel who was the manager for four years or five years with crew obviously he managed in league one in the last season the season before he said that the he was given advice by Steve Holland, the England assistant manager, and he said something like, "You because when he was sacked, Steve Holland was also sacked by Crew years ago, mm. and he said that Steve turned to him and texted him and said he did better than I did, and that gave, <laughs> that it, even though it was kind of off the cuff and it was only something small, he said David said it gave him such a a huge lift that mm. if." If he was sacked and I could do a better job than him at this club, then I could go on and become like he's England's assistant manager now. You know, get to a <laughs> final of the Euros yeah. and a semi final of the World Cup. It's amazing. So it's interesting mm. you, you say that. Anthony Barry, actually, as well, he is the Belgium assistant manager now, if I'm not mistaken. Assistant coach? Yeah, I think he's still involved. Yeah, obviously, yeah. I've only talked to him um, through his club, really. But I think, yeah, I think I did see, I read somewhere that he's going to the World Cup this, this yeah, winter. I, I need you to be boastful for a second right but what was the positive impact that your role had on Wimbledon overall then because you're finished with the with the club now so why why did you have a positive in, impact on Wimbledon and I've seen so you can talk about the, the statistics now I've seen some of the stats on LinkedIn they were amazing mm -hmm. you were second highest goal contribution from subs last season yes yeah so exactly that so pretty much I think the best way to put it is that we had the most productive substitutes in the league um, and, and like I said, I've got all the data to, to back that up from, from a physical, technical and tactical point of view that we managed to have the most productive substitutes in the league. And, and like you say, when you're comparing some clubs' budgets and the players that they have on their bench compared to, some, not, not ours, because that's disrespectful to ours, ours were fantastic lads and fantastic players, but maybe less experienced, we, we still managed to have great success with that, you know. And, and at the time I left, you know, we were fourth in, in points gained from losing positions. And, and while that's solely not down to substitutes, you know, that, that substitutes play a part in that. Um, like you say, the goal contributions was something that we were quite keen on. Um, and, we, and we have a couple of other metrics. That again, unfortunately, I can't say, but but sort of use um, a sort of a results-driven perspective to show that our substitutes actually helped us sort of achieve more results um, than quite a few of the other teams in the league. So that that's sort of what I use as a, as a selling point now and something that I use to the clubs that I go and present to. 
to say this is the this is the impact that that can have on your substitutes. That's amazing. So, what's the future for you in this specialist specialist area? Then, will you branch out into consultancy? Yeah, so I'm excited to sort of, uh, as of Monday, really roll this out as a, as a substitution consultancy, similar to the throwing coach, mm-hmm. you know, where, where he sort of works with numerous clubs across lots of different leagues, you know, to, to work on their throw-ins, you know, for the next year, while I do sort of my next coaching qualification, I'm excited to sort of do this alongside it and, and roll it out as a as a consultancy. And like I said, I've presented to 22, 23 clubs already. Um, and done a little bit of sort of unofficial work for, for those clubs, and but now it's excited to sort of roll it out properly and do that for the sort of the next season, and then the future will hopefully, you know, get back to me being a first team manager. That's uh, that's the goal. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say to you next. Obviously, you said you mm. wanted to be a manager, but how how long could you see yourself being? If you, I'm sure you'll be successful in this role because it is the most niche role in football that I've ever heard about at the minute, genuinely. Because I know Thomas Gronemark obviously does throw-ins as well. Mm. And when he first came, it was like it was so confusing. Like, wait, what do you need a throw-in <laughs> yeah. coach? But the numbers showed the Liverpool scored more goals directly from not directly from throw-ins, but from mm. following from throw-ins than any other team in the Premier League. They scored mm. five or six. It was amazing, you know. So the numbers show, and then your numbers as well. They 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 show. Do you think that in the future this will be a much more common role? I do. Yeah. So I so I went presented to one club who sort of. Very keen on the role, um, but sort of just said, "Listen, I think it's I think it's actually sort of ahead of its time a little bit in terms of the set piece coaches now are becoming almost like a norm. Yeah. You know, you'd like to think that most Premier League clubs will have them. They're becoming a little bit more common now in Championship. I even know League One and two teams that have them. So mm-hmm. you know, but that five years ago would have been a, unheard of to think of, a, of anyone below the top top teams having a set piece coach. So I think I think it could become a role." Um, in, in the future in terms of like a really common role for clubs to have but additionally the, the term substitutions coach is fantastic but you can just be a first team coach that specialises in substitutes so you know I know of so many now first team coaches that specialise in set pieces you know because it's another string to your bow so it wouldn't surprise me if maybe rather than having designated subs coaches there was there's going to be sort of coaches that are hired on the basis that they might be able to specialise in substitutes yeah. as well I think Eric Ramsey at Manchester United is a, I think he's a force team coach, but he's also the set piece coach. They made that mm. in the summer, so he does that dual role. Hybrid um, role, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hybrid role, yeah, so you're, you're spot on what you were saying. Sammy, I'm aware we're just coming up to 40 minutes, and I know I, I have an awful habit of keeping guests over time, but <laughs> no, I, I want to ask one more question that I love asking. And I ask this in every podcast and I get some amazing answers from people saying their parents to people saying the Columbia manager from 1990. Who are your coaching inspirations or inspirations in life? Inspiration you know, that, in life. That helped you along the journey and that, that inspire you every day. Yeah, inspiration to my uh, inspiration to my life is my mum. So so she's um, she's one of the strongest people I know. She, she, you know, I've, I've never seen someone have so much resilience to, to sort of what life throws at her and her ability to keep going and and me growing up witnessing that you know she did everything to make sure that you know I was being fed and I had a roof over my head and that sort of stuff well she was battling sort of like an illness as well so that strength that I've seen from her is something that I'll always continue in my you know in, in my journey as it is in whether it be in life or the footballing world is just that ability to keep going um, and then in terms of my footballing role models or motivations would probably be it's probably a mixture there's there's people that have been involved um so for example my first ever manager Carl Robson at Bournemouth 
you know, he, he gave me the platform and the route into football that, um, you know, was amazing. And, and I still sort of keep an eye out for his journey. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Robinson now will always forever be in my sort of role model and I'll follow him and still message him, you know, frequently. Um, but I think it's tough. I think I, I split it into two ways when I talk about football. I've got my philosophy and I've got my culture. So when I talk about philosophy, I love Bielsa. I love Jesse Marsh. I love um, Gasparini. Um, so they're, they're teams I could just watch all day, you know, and then the notepads alone I have on them teams are, you know, are stacked. So that's something. From from a cultural point of view, I think Graham Potter is fascinating, you know, the work that he's done and the way that he can sort of portray messages using different methods is just absolutely you know, mind-blowing. So I think f- from that point of view in creating a, a culture and an elite standard culture, a we-not-me culture, I think that's probably him who I'd use as a, as a motivation, yeah. That's amazing. I love that answer. Sammy, where can people find you? Uh, so you, I'm only on LinkedIn, unfortunately. Yeah, I haven't really jumped on the Twitter game yet. Uh, you I, definitely uh, should. To, yeah, I try to stay off the socials because I, um, I feel like it's quite a big time consumer, isn't it? When you when you get in, so it's I try and there, yeah. Um, yeah. So only only LinkedIn, unfortunately. But yeah, Sammy Lander, you know, come find me and chat some football with me. <laughs> amazing, Sammy. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you'll smash it in your roles in the future, and best of luck with the consultancy role. You've been a fantastic guest on the podcast and I hope you enjoyed your time talking to me. No, Adam, it's been superb, man. Like I said, I'm a massive fan of the platform, so Amazing. it's a privilege to, to feature on it as well. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you, Adam. You can find myself on Twitter at ASCODY24 and you can find Total Football Analysis on Twitter at Total Analysis. Check out the website for all the latest analysis pieces. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Google, of course. I'll see you all next week for another really exciting episode. Goodbye for now.